My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse, speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today, Christians across the world celebrate Palm Sunday, remembering the day when Jesus Christ rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem less than a week before his crucifixion. Considering this, Pastor Jones decided to break away from a series on the life of Jesus to examine four different views of the cross of Christ as seen in the Old Testament. Keep in mind that each of these viewpoints was penned hundreds of years before our Lord's birth. Hi, this is Pastor Elaine Jones speaking for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. It's a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. And I want to wish you all a um, happy Palm Sunday. Actually, it wouldn't be exactly two years ago uh, this week, but it was Palm Sunday of 2020 that began our radio ministry. You know, some people think that anytime um, things that look bad, like the pandemic, happen, that um, Satan's behind it, God couldn't be behind it at all. But I'll just tell you that God's in control of world affairs, and he has a way of working in ways that we don't begin to understand. Uh, sometimes we need to be shaken up a little bit, and I think God has done that in our nation and across the world in a very unusual way over the last um, couple of years. And as a result, one of the blessings in our church family, as a result of what we went through back in 2020, we decided that we would, uh, we were actually sitting around in a men's prayer meeting on a Tuesday morning and um, talking about the fact that no one was allowed to go to church at that point. We were on the complete lockdown, if you remember. And um, uh, one of the guys just kicked around the fact that, hey, uh, you know, it would seem that people would be wishing that they could some do, do something to celebrate the resurrection of Christ and Palm Sunday. And, and so one of our guys uh, knew some folks down at the uh, a radio station, uh, the Bold Gold Media Group, and uh, called them up and they said, we were just talking about that, that we should have some kind of a religious service during this time. And so uh, that began the process of of our radio ministry. It's amazing how the Lord brought some people along who wanted to help um, fund it uh, very, uh, very well. They funded it in the early days and and others have given to it over the months, too. We're very grateful for God's goodness and the privilege of being able to serve the Lord in this way. And for uh, often on uh, the Palm Sunday, I like to talk about the crucifixion of Christ because it happened. Palm Sunday um, would be uh, about four days before, and my as I would remember, I, I believe Christ was probably crucified on Thursday, not Friday. It's not a big deal, but I believe that. And... Um, uh, but it's interesting because uh, if you're going to talk about the resurrection, which I think is good for Resurrection Sunday or often called Easter Sunday, um, I like to spend some time talking about the crucifixion of Christ, uh, which would happen just a few days after Palm Sunday. And so what I'd like to be do today is give you four pictures of the cross in the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind that the Bible is not one book, but 66 separate books. Uh, written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And so when you look at prophecy in the scripture, what's so incredible about it is that people are uttering prophecies hundreds of years before they take place, and of course they're not living to see them fulfilled. And of course they're recorded, then the fulfillments are recorded by different authors um, than were the, um, uh, the original prophet who uttered the prophecy in the first place. 
So we, we come to every one of these prophecies of the cross are hundreds of years before their fulfillment by authors that, again, never saw what they wrote about um, take, actually take place in, histor- in, in, in history. And so the first uh, view of the cross is in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to start to read at verse 14 and 15. But before we get started, let's ask God's blessing upon his word that he might help us to understand it and what is so important about it for our lives today. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to, to study your word uh, with these folks. We pray that you'll bless our time together as we consider the uh, four different views of the cross. And so we give ourselves to thee, asking for your grace and guidance, for your Holy Spirit's help, and for understanding for those who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we come to the Garden of Eden. And man has just, uh, unfortunately, fallen into sin. And God is in the process of confronting Adam and Eve with that reality. And so uh, he began with, with Adam, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to eat of? And Adam uh, turns around and says, well, it's the woman you gave me. Uh, so it's kind of God, your fault and the, and the woman's fault, Eve's fault. And so he passes the buck. And then Eve says, well, it was, the serpent made me do it. And and so she's basically saying, the devil made me do it. <clears throat> and then God begins to speak to the serpent. It's very interesting. Satan then is, is the um, behind this. And so God's talking to the devil here and listen to what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's a very interesting picture. And um, if you've listened over the months, you've probably heard me reference this before. But the picture is of, uh, and remember, the God is talking to Satan. And so this is the view of the cross from Satan's viewpoint. As God describes what Satan will do with the um, with, with the crucifixion of Christ and 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 what's going to happen. So, what he the picture that God draws here is of a serpent attacking the Savior. He's called the seed of the woman. And what, so, what we're learning from this is that the Savior is going to be a human. Now, the fact that he's the seed of the woman is a is a uh, indication that the Savior is not the seed of a man, which is incredible when you think of the fact that all of us as humans have a human father. That's where we get the seed of, of, uh, of, of life is from our father, and yet he's called the seed of a woman. And so this is a, a hint at the virgin birth of Christ. Again, this is, this is in the Garden of Eden. It was penned by Moses in 1400 BC, 1400 years before Christ's birth, roughly. Um, it is... Uh, uh, it was, however, uttered in the Garden of Eden, which is at least uh, 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 twenty, say, twenty six hundred years before that, at least four thousand BC. And so, what the Lord was saying to Satan is, "You're like the snake. You're going to be attacking the Savior." And 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 Satan, in some sense, was going to be successful. He he says that um, you shall. Uh, he was going to crush your head. The Savior is going to crush your head, but you shall bruise his heel. So the picture is of a serpent attacking a man, 
and sinking his fangs into that man's heel, which would cause a, a lot of pain, obviously. But in the process, the man doesn't shrink from that. He steps on the serpent and crushes his head in that very attack against him. And what we see that is a picture of the cross from Satan's viewpoint is that he would be aggressively trying to kill the Christ, which, by the way, we find throughout the scriptures after Jesus, um, actually even before his birth. You think about the fact that Jesus was, um, uh, Jesus' mother was, uh, um, went along with, with Joseph. She becomes his wife. And she goes along with him on this journey, which is as the crow flies from Nazareth to Bethlehem is about 70 miles. And she's doing this when she's at the end of her pregnancy. That in itself was a danger. And then, of course, shortly after Christ's birth, you find Herod trying to kill the Christ and, uh, and killing every uh, baby in Jerusalem from two years old and younger. And of course, God delivered him from that. When Jesus began his public ministry, um, one of his first sermons, actually the first one that's recorded in Luke chapter 4, his own townspeople tried to throw him over the brow of the hill and kill him. You can find in the Gospel of John a couple different times when the uh, leaders in Jerusalem, even at the temple itself, tried to stone him to death, and, and the Lord escaped from their grasp. And so you think about these different attempts that Satan was making through his followers to kill the Christ, which is exactly how it's described here in Genesis 3, back in the Garden of Eden, I will put enmity or hostility or warfare between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, between your seed, so that God speaking to Satan, Satan's children and her seed. And the seed there specifically is the Christ, the Messiah. He, the Messiah, the Christ, will bruise your head. He'll crush your head and you shall bruise or you'll attack his heel. And so we see the ultimate fulfillment of this when Satan is successful at getting Jesus on the cross. He's successful to have him crucified. But in that crucifixion of Christ, what he did not understand is that while he was motivating his children to put Christ to death, Jesus was dying on the cross for our sins. What a picture. The picture of a serpent biting a man while the man strikes his head. So the serpent inflicting pain on the Savior when the Savior was actually crushing Satan's power. And how was Satan's power crushed? Because Jesus dies on the cross for our sins in our place. I don't think Satan saw it until, until at least Jesus is hanging there on the cross. That's picture number one. Let me hasten to a second picture of the cross. Now, the first one was from Satan's viewpoint. Let's talk about it from God the Father's viewpoint. And for that, we go to Genesis 22. And again, if you've listened over the months, I have referenced this passage before. And what's going on in Genesis chapter 22 is there's a great man of God named Abraham. He's the founder of the nation of Israel and a man whom God used greatly. And yet Abraham comes up against the trial of his life. And I'll start at Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now let's stop and just try to get a chronology here. We're assuming that the Garden of Eden is somewhere around 4,000 BC, and that's the minimum. I don't think anybody's going to go below that. All right, it's, you fast forward just about 2,000 years later. So now we're still at 2000 BC. This is recorded again by Moses in 1400 BC. 
So just like the Garden of Eden, Moses is the author of the first book of the Bible. He's writing it about 1400 BC, and he's expressing and sharing with us events that happened before his lifetime. We saw the Garden of Eden. Now we're fast forwarding to Abraham, who still is about 1600 years before, um, I, I'm sorry, he's still about 400 years, 600 years before uh, Moses is, is on the earth. So Abraham um, is, is given the test of his life. What, what, what was that test? Then he, then God said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. All right, so uh, what's the significance of this? Well, obviously, for to be told that you're going to need to offer your son as a burnt offering to God, you're going to have to kill your son as an offering to God, would be a horrific commandment. I can't imagine that. And um, the amazing thing is, is Abraham uh, has come to the point in his life where he has learned to trust God so uh, uh, so well that he is willing to follow through. And Hebrews, the uh, New Testament book, tells us that he would do this because he believed that even if he had to go through with this and actually sacrifice his son, that God would raise him from the dead. And the reason why is because God had promised that this son, his name is Isaac, that this son would be the um, uh, the next in line toward the Christ and toward the great nation that God had promised Abraham that would come from, from him. And so Abraham it does not shrink from this command. He decides he's going to do this. Now, something else, another detail that we should uh, mention as we go is he's told to go to the land of Moriah. Now, we know where that's at. Um, so let's keep reading. Uh, I will tell you that the land of Moriah is uh, near present day, and of course in Abraham's day, ancient uh, Jerusalem. There are several mountains called the mountains of Moriah that are right around the city of Jerusalem itself. And God said, I want you to go to one of the mountains, a specific one that I'm going to tell you about. Okay, so verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Now again, he doesn't put this off. He doesn't say, well, boy, I need to think about this for a while. Maybe I better talk this one over with, with my servants or with Sarah, my wife, his Isaac's mother, doesn't, doesn't seem to do any of that. He rises up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And again, we have the reference to a specific place. And again, it said the place of which God had told him. So God is sending him to a specific spot. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkeys. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Which is showing us exactly what the author of Hebrews would say later on in the New Testament, that Abraham believed that if he had to sacrifice his son, Isaac would rise from the dead, and they were going to go to make this sacrifice, and they were both coming back. That's the faith this man had in God. He, he learned that he could trust the Lord. So Abraham lay, took the wood of the offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now think of that. He lays it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife 
And the two of them went together. Abraham's got the fire to consume the sacrifice, which would be his son. He's got the knife in his hand as well. He gave Isaac the wood to carry. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So the two, uh, and, and it's interesting. That's a great question. Uh, Dad, we got the we got the fire, we got the wood, but but didn't we forget something? We're supposed to have a lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham said, "My son, God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering." So the two of them went together. That was prophetic too. As they so they're walking along. Now think of it: Isaac's carrying the wood. Abraham's got the instruments of death. He's got the he's got the knife and he's got the fire that uh, is uh, burning on the on the uh, on a torch or something like that that he's bringing. And they came to the place of which God had told them. There's the reference to a specific place again. The place of which God had told them. And Abraham built there an altar and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Now let's just stop and let's just uh, think about this for a few moments. I'm talking to many of you who are parents. Can you imagine doing this? Now, many of you would say, well, I can't even imagine my my son allowing me to do that. And I know what you're saying. I, um, I've, I've got three boys, and, um, and they're, they're, they're good kids. I, I, I love each one of them. They're pretty um, strong-willed, and that, that's not always a bad thing. You know, they, they, uh, they're willing to stand up for what they believe, in, and I appreciate that about them. But can you imagine, uh, first of all, your son allowing you to do this, but then secondly, as a father, gathering your son up and tying him up and laying him on the altar. And of course, now put yourself in the son's place. That's got to be a, a, a terrifying thing. Uh, maybe Abraham says, son, you, I know you don't understand what I'm doing. Believe me, God's gonna He's gonna take care of you in some way. He might, might have might, might have had that. We, we're not told what Abraham said, but I want you instead of thinking about Isaac and what he's going through, I want you to think about Abraham. Think what it would be like to be him, to have your own flesh and blood. Who, by the way, I'm, I'm sure the vast majority of us as parents would have far rather switched roles and said, Isaac, I'll tell you what, you be the one. That that strikes the knife into me instead of me into you. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm older. I've I've got uh, most of my life behind me. You're you've got your whole life ahead of you. If Abraham doesn't trust God enough to explicitly obey Him, then then that would make all kinds of sense, would it not? Well, we'll we'll do almost what God said. You you be the you be the the guy that offers the sacrifice. I'll be the sacrifice. But that wasn't what God had required. And so Abraham, he, he binds his son, he lays him on the altar, and he actually pulls the knife back. In verse 10, it says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And in Abraham's mind, it seems obvious from the text that he was prepared to go through with this. Now again, I would ask you to think about this as a parent. How difficult this would be, how horrific this would be, how much you would want to switch 
with your son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I say to you that I believe that the angel of the Lord there is none other than Jesus Christ himself. You find that specific title, the angel of the Lord, not not an angel, but the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament seems to be connected with one who himself is God. Angel means messenger. And so the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, seems to be God himself in the form of Jesus Christ. But be that as it may, I want you to think about the picture that God has just drawn of the emotion of the Father in offering a sacrifice of his Son. And I say, Pastor, why do you, why do you think this is a, a picture of the cross? Well, I mentioned to you that the, the, the land of, of um, Moriah is a significant reference. We know that it's near Jerusalem, and um, that there are certain mountains called the mountains of Moriah, which are not only in the, in the city walls itself, but outside them. And, G- and what God told Abraham was, I want you to offer him on one of the mountains, one specific one in that region, of which I'm going to tell you. Now, let me go on in the text before I explain a little bit more about this. It says in verse 13, Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Now, if you if you remember back when Isaac asks his dad, he says, um, uh, we have the wood, we have the fire, where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. But it's interesting that God did not provide a lamb that day. God provided a ram. A ram is an older um, sheep. It's a male sheep. It, the ram would have its horns. He, it's not your necessarily your typical sacrifice. Often you, you offer a lamb instead of a younger animal. But in this case, there is an older uh, sheep. It's, it's a ram. He's caught by, in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And the, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, what an incredible statement that there, in this place, he names the specific place, it shall be in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What would be provided? Well, the one thing that wasn't provided on that day, there was a substitute provided, but it wasn't the substitute that Abraham had predicted. Abraham predicted that God would provide himself a lamb. What's fascinating is that when Jesus comes on the scene in John chapter 1, and he's going to be identified as the promised Messiah by John the Baptist, you know how John the Baptist identifies him? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, what's also interesting is which one of these mountains of Moriah was 
was, did this event take place? And there is some controversy, and, and uh, I don't think we can be certain about this, but I find it very interesting. In the um, Islamic faith, the the uh, the Muslims they will um, they will switch the identity of the son that Abraham had from Isaac to Ishmael, and so they say no, this happened to Ishmael, and where they believe it happened was the very spot that the Dome of the Rock sits on today. Not only did they think that that this sacrifice with with Abraham took place there, but they also believe that that's where Muhammad went to ascend back into heaven. They have a, a belief that Muhammad ascended into heaven. And that's why Jerusalem and where the Dome of the Rock sits is the third most sacred spot in the Islamic faith, the other two being Mecca and Medina. Now, the Jewish uh, people uh, have a different view on this. They believe that the Mount Moriah, that, that uh, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, as the scriptures say, it was Isaac, not Ishmael. Um, they believe that that was the location where the temple would later sit. And the temple, by the way, and the Dome of the Rock, the uh, ancient temple, uh, are probably two different locations. Okay, uh, When I was over in Israel as a, as a young um, man just out of college, uh, our Jewish guide, and, and again, I, I just have to take his word for it, I, uh, uh, he believed at that time, and he probably was correct, that... Um, that you actually wouldn't have to move the Dome of the Rock to build the Jewish temple, that, that there are two different sites, that they, the ancient Jewish temple um, sits on a, uh, would, would have sat on a slightly different site than the Dome of the Rock. But I have a third view, and um, it's, I, th I think it's more reasonable. If you think about it, what you have is you have a picture of the crucifixion of Christ from God the Father's point of view. Abraham would be picturing God the Father. Jesus is pictured by Isaac. Who's carrying the wood? Well, Isaac was. What was Jesus carrying at his crucifixion? He was carrying his cross until he, he got so uh, weakened by probably blood loss and all that he had been through that you remember he fell beneath that load and, and uh, Joseph of, uh, uh, excuse me, another Simon of Cyrene had to uh, carry the cross in his place. But it's, it's very interesting that, that Abraham, um, at, remember, he carried the instruments of death. And I'm going to go to another passage that I'll come back to. It's in Isaiah chapter 53. And I, I was lo looking back at a, um, uh, a message that I gave on Palm Sunday. It was either last year or the year before. And I was talking on the subject of who killed Jesus. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And we could go back through and we could talk about, well, Pontius Pilate, he ordered his execution. We could talk about Judas uh, being um, the one that betrayed Jesus. We could talk about the chief uh, religious leaders in Israel, the chief priests, and etc., as they really manipulated to, make, to, to uh, cause him to be crucified. You could talk about the crowd that called for Jesus' crucifixion in front of Pilate. There's a number of people that you could blame. You could maybe even blame the disciples because they ran away when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. But ultimately, do you know who ultimately was responsible for the crucifixion of Christ? Let me read it to you. It's in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord. And that word Lord there in the English translations, 
uh, typically will be all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And what that is, that's um, uh, trying to show us in English that this is the Hebrew name for God, typically God the Father. Now let me so let me put that ref, put it that way in front of you. Yet it pleased God the Father to bruise him. Do you remember in, in, in our first example of the cross in the Old Testament from Satan's viewpoint that Satan would bruise his heel? Now we're told that that the Savior would be bruised because it was God the Father's will. It pleased God the Father to bruise him. He, God the Father, has put him, God the Son, or the Messiah, to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So Abraham and Isaac are a picture of the cross from God the Father's point of view. I don't think until I was a, a preacher probably in my 30s did I ever really seriously meditate on the suffering that Christ, I would often think of what Christ did for me, but I hadn't really thought of what God the Father had done. And I remember it was actually for a Good Friday service. Uh, we were doing a combined service. I was going to be over at um, the Baptist Church there in Holly, and uh, we all kind of took one of the sayings of Christ, and, and, and that was when it was really coming down heavy on my heart. Uh, I'd heard a message on this years ago when I was in college, but to actually proclaim um, that that we ought to be thinking of of the crucifixion of Christ, not merely from Jesus' standpoint, but from God the Father's standpoint. And Genesis 22 is that. When we think about what it would be like to be the dad, to, to actually have to plunge the knife into our own son, then we're getting a little idea of what it was like to be God the Father, because God the Father will place the sins of the world upon his son and punish him in our place. So in a very real sense, we can blame all of us for the crucifixion of Christ because it was our sins that put him there. But in another sense, God the Father chose to have his son crucified, to allow the crucifixion of Christ, and yes, to place the sins of the world upon his son so that we could be forgiven and have a home in heaven. That is the love that God the Father has toward us. Listen as I read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It's a fascinating uh, passage that talks about this very thing. It says this, For he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin, Jesus never, never sinned, to be sin for us. God the Father placed the sins of the world upon his own son. And, and so in, in, in a slight contrast to Abraham, because Abraham was, was told at the end, God said, stop. And as a matter of fact, it probably was Jesus Christ himself saying, stop, don't do it. You don't have to do it, Abraham. But we're going to call this place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. There's coming a day when that's going to happen. When God the Father will place the sins of the world upon his Son and punish Jesus in our place, and there was no one who would stop that sacrifice. Yeah, from Satan's point of view, it's like the serpent biting into the heel. When, from God the Father's point of view, the cross looks like a father executing his own son. Can't imagine the love that God the Father has toward you.
Let me hasten to the third picture of the cross in the Old Testament, and that's the picture of the cross from God the Son's point of view. And we get that from Psalm 22. When you come to Psalm 22, you get a, which is, by the way, now we're fast forwarding in time. We went from 4,000 roughly BC in the Garden of Eden, uh, again, recorded by Moses. We go now to 2000 BC, again, recorded by Moses uh, with Abraham. Now we're going to jump to 1000 BC, okay, 1000 years before Christ. And a man who writes this is, is named David, the most famous king of Israel. And David starts out the psalm, and it gives us an idea that we are talking about the cross from God, the Son's point of view, because listen to his first words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, where do we hear that? Most of you, if you know your scriptures, are thinking, boy, that's what Jesus said when he's hanging on the cross right toward the end. And you would be exactly right. And so from Psalm 22, which he was quoting, we understand now we're looking at the cross from God, behind God the Son's eyes. And when you think of what comes next, you will see it. I think you're going to see it with me. Let me start again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh God, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season and am not silent. Very interesting. Jesus is crucified during the day. You say, well, well, how does it, it reflect the night season? If you remember, for the last, I, bet, I think it was about three hours, the sun went dark, the Bible says. And so he's crying, yes, in the day and in the night. He goes on, Jesus still talking to his father. He says, but thou, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man. By the way, that is also will be referenced later in another view of the cross. A reproach of men and despised by the people. And that's exactly what was happening to Jesus on the cross. He was being laughed at, scorned. Again, the crowd around Pilate was calling for his crucifixion. Listen to verse 7. This is, again, remember, this is written a thousand years before Jesus was born. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him since, uh, let him deliver him since he delights in him. And they were mocking Jesus and they were saying these type of things while he's hanging on the cross. You can read about this in the gospel accounts of this. Jesus still talking to his father. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. A very interesting statement. Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is, is an eternal being, but he becomes a man. And so as man, God is his God. As the son, as God himself, God is his equal. God the Father is his equal. It's, it's a fascinating thing about Jesus. And so that's why sometimes you have him refer to God as his equal, where he says, if you don't honor the son, you're not honoring the father that sent him. Uh, he says, I and my father are one. And he, what he's saying is we are of the same essence. And yet he'll also say, I ascend to my father and your father to my God and your God. How can he be both? How can God be his equal and God be his God? Because he's both God and man at the same time. And now he is saying, and again, written a thousand years before he was born, 
you are my God from my mother's womb. Isn't that interesting? Now he's still talking to the father. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And that was the truth. There was nobody that could rescue him at this point. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. So he compares, whether it be the soldiers or the religious leaders, um, he's comparing them to strong bulls. And a bull can maul someone and kill them. He says, they, um, they've encircled me. I'm, I'm surrounded by them. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. You think even of his beating before the Roman uh, soldiers and how he was uh, way outnumbered. And you say, well, that wouldn't matter to the Son of God. Yes, but he allowed this. Remember, he's allowing this to happen to him. He says, I am poured out like water. If you understand the crucifixion, when someone is hanging on the cross, this is really describing a lot of the physical characteristics of what's going on. Because, first of all, he hasn't had a, a drink. You remember how thirsty he would be. And you also re recall that, that often it's said when someone was, 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 was uh, raised to the crucifixion, they'd often drop that cross into a hole, which would throw bone, bones out of joint. And he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. I feel like I'm just kind of almost dropping. And, and for every breath, when, when one is in the, in the, on the cross, in, in that crucified position, they have to push up just to get a breath to expand their lungs. It says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. He goes on, oh, for dogs surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Are you getting the picture that this is the cross from the Son of God's point of view? He's describing this to his father as he's praying. And again, I remind you of how the Bible comes together in the fact that this was written 1,000 years before Jesus was born, approximately that. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then there is this statement that transitions the whole psalm. You have answered me. There came a time right at the end of his crucifixion where he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he gives up the ghost and he dies that physical death on the cross for our sins. But at the same time, if you recall, he says at the end, it is finished, which means uh, that paid in full or, 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 or victory. It was, it was a Roman cry of victory. Yeah, he was heard and answered after he had gone through and paid for our sins completely. But we've looked at the cross from Satan's point of view like a serpent who strikes a man and is crushed in the process of sinking his teeth into the Savior's heel. Then we saw the cross from God the Father's point of view as Abraham's sacrifice of his son on, I believe, the very spot that Jesus would be crucified that was said that in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen or it shall be provided. And then we saw the cross from God the Son's point of view as Jesus is describing what he's experiencing in, in Psalm 22. 
Now let's go to the cross from mankind's point of view. And so we come to the book of Isaiah. Now we're jumping forward in the Old Testament timeline to about 700 years before Jesus. So let's recall again, Garden of Eden about 4,000 at least years before Christ. Abraham's sacrifice about 2,000 years before Christ. Then you're looking at the, the Psalm 22 written by David about 1,000 years before Christ. And now we come to Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, which is uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering Savior. And this is about 700 years before Christ. And so I'm going to start in chapter 52, verse 13. And it says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And the servant here is the Messiah. It's the Savior. It's the Christ. Okay. And God the Father speaking. So he says, my servant shall deal prudently. And of course, Jesus did. Jesus uh, was wise in his dealings on earth like no one or other one has ever been. He shall be exalted, which he was. And let's keep in mind that a lot of people try to blame uh, the nation of Israel and the Jewish people specifically for the crucifixion of Christ. Folks, all of our sins put in there. We've already seen that God the Father ultimately decided, and by the way, it comes out of this very passage as well in Isaiah 53, God the Father chose to take his, uh, to let his son be crucified for our sins, and God the Father placed the sins of the world upon his son. We learn that. But let's keep in mind that uh, to all of our sins brought him there, and that many of the of uh, the folks of Jesus' day in the nation of Israel, many of the Jewish people loved him. They didn't hate him and despise him. They they loved him. Now again, the crowd that called for his crucifixion, uh, they were very fickle, obviously. But there were many that loved him, respected him, honored him, um, and and believed that he was the Christ. So he, he's he's exalted. He's extolled, praised. That that means praised. He's very high. Now, but verse 14, now we, we have a, a switch, because it says, Just as many were astonished at you. So his visage, and when you think of visage, think of your facial uh, appearance. His visage, or his appearance, his form, was marred more than any man, and his form than the sons of men. What he's saying is, Jesus' appearance all of a sudden, even though he's been ex ex extolled and praised and, and highly exalted, all of a sudden we look at him and his appearance, he looks like, like no other human, or he doesn't even look like a human. The idea is something has gone drastically wrong. And, and what it, I believe is describing is how Christ looked after the beatings and even the crucifixion as he's hanging on the cross. And it seems like he didn't even look like a human being any longer. You say, well, why was that? Well, when you go through the trials of Christ, he was beaten more than just by the Roman soldiers, and they uh, would have done a thorough job. Okay, well, they would, in all probability, it's a cat of nine tails, which, if you're not familiar with that, would be a whip with nine different um, lashes coming out of it. Uh, at the end of each of those leather thongs that are coming out of the, the handle um, are often pieces of glass or bone or metal. And and so the soldiers were were very proficient at this. They they would they would wrap those thongs around a person by you know slinging it with with, with great force, and then they would rip those uh, 
thongs off of that person's skin after they bit in with the, with the metal or the bone or the or the uh, uh, sharp stone. And literally, you'd rip nine tracks of flesh with it. And, and a soldier could many times kill a man before you ever got any farther than the whipping. And so in the Jewish circles, and I think the Romans were following it, in all probability, Jesus is uh, receiving about 39 lashes. They would typically stop one before 40 because um, that was the, the Jewish rule. And I, I, I again, I'm assuming that the Romans may have followed that procedure. But Jesus would have been, uh, his, his, his back would have been ripped to shreds, literally. When it says his visage was marred, think about the fact that he was beaten after um, uh, his first Jewish trial. He very possibly was beaten along the way of being uh, dragged from one place to another. Um, Herod's soldiers, uh, he, Jesus had a trial before Herod. They mocked him. I don't know what they did to him physically. We're told that the Romans uh, got him off on the side and, and they beat him. Remember, that's where they, they made the crown of thorns, which are, tr- are tremendously long uh, thorns, and rammed that down into his skull. And they beat uh, on top of that crown of thorns with with a uh, with a rod. They uh, it, we're told, and so th- he would have been a, a a bloodied mess. And it says many were astonished at you. He couldn't believe it. What they're seeing. This was the man that was extolled and very high. Verse fifteen. So he shall sprinkle many nations and sprinkle with what? I believe it's talking about the sprinkling of his blood. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. I'm in verse 15, by the way, of Isaiah 52. For what had not been told them, they shall see, and what they had not heard, they shall consider. So this is something that was not expected. The rulers of the world are shocked at this when they hear about this. Now we come into chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the uh, Gospel of John makes reference to the arm of the Lord. And it's it's very interesting what he's talking. The arm of the Lord refers to the strength of God. And John talks about the fact that Jesus had done so many miracles, and yet, unfortunately, although there were many that did believe in him, many did not. And John is saying that the many people who did not believe in him did so even though God's power had been revealed in front of them. And so Isaiah prophesied this, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Savior, shall grow up before him, speaking of God the Father, as a tender plant is a root out of dry ground. Jesus' generation was not a, a godly generation. That's what he's talking about, like a root, like, like a plant that's coming out of a very, very desolate area. He has no form or comeliness. And when you think of form, think of splendor. Jesus is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be the savior of the world. And he looks very human, very weak, as the Roman soldiers are beating him and forcing him to carry his cross. And you can see him falling under his cross. There's no majesty. There's no stately form that he's going through. He's no comeliness. He has no splendor. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I don't know how many of you have, have seen the film The Passion of the Christ, but uh, I know we watched it one time. Someone gave us the, the back in the days of the, the uh, videotape. And so my wife and I, around this time of the year, watched it one time. And I'll, t- I'll be honest with you, we really didn't ever want to watch it again. 
And the reason why is because of the, the it, it, it tried, and I, I knew they could not. You could not get away with showing how horrific it was, but they, they tried to make it as realistic as they could. And remember, the physical suffering is nothing compared to what Jesus would suffer as he as God the Father places the sins of the world upon his Son. There is no beauty that we should desire him. This is not a beautiful scene. This is not something that we would want to see. We would want to turn away our eyes from this scene, and rightly so. My son was just out uh, hiking with some uh, relatives and friends up in the um, Appalachian Mountains. And they came upon a scene, I, I just kind of overheard it as he was talking to my wife about it, um, where a guy who did a lot of um, of like the extreme marathon running. So this is a guy who was really in good shape. And he was running up in the, on that trail. And somehow, I don't know if it was just a stress fat fracture or what, but he came down wrong and he fractured his femur, the, the largest bone in your body, your upper, think of your upper thigh, the bone inside of that. And if, again, I hope I never experienced that, but I've been told it is horrifically painful. And not only was that going on, but now some park rangers are showing up to try to help the guy. People are, are, are around trying to help as well. And uh, there's there's some major blood vessels right there. It's 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 a very serious situation. And his his the bottom part of his leg is beginning, and down in his ankle area, from what I understand, was beginning to swell up. Not a good thing. And so they're out there. They're gonna they're gonna try to um, uh, you know life flight him out when they can get him to a, a spot where a helicopter can land. But they got to transport him. And and this swelling is is something that needs to be dealt with. And the best way, the only way that they felt like they could deal with it was to take his leg and to put it in traction, which means they're going to have to pull that broken femur because your, your thigh muscles are so strong, they contract, they contract when, when, that, when that femur is broken. And so that man was, and you, who can blame him? He is screaming as they're pulling his leg out in order to get that uh, bone at least to be hopefully close to where it's supposed to be and trying to to eliminate some of the internal bleeding and trying to get him to a place where he could get some help. Uh, I can't imagine that kind of, of of pain. And yet, what 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 we're told here about the Savior is that he is is going through this horrific suffering. That that again is just the reality of it. It goes way beyond just the physical side of what we can see. In bearing our sins for us, he's despised. The scripture goes on, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And I don't blame him. Just like my son, it was it was a horrific thing. You don't want to hear that man yelling and screaming. Okay, I, again, you sympathize, but but how horrific that would be. And, and in this case, as Isaiah the prophet is 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 trying to describe. The scene, he says that we, I, I just want to turn away. We hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We don't look up to him at this point. He looks weak. He goes on, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that's God the Father, has laid on him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. Can I say this? And I, there's more to this passage. You can read it for yourself. I stopped at Isaiah 53, verse 6. You should go all the way to the end of the chapter, but I am out of time. But can I tell you this? Jesus, there is no one that can fulfill this prophecy but Jesus himself. The fact of someone suffering in our place you, means that he had to be sinless, which is exactly what the Bible describes. And he is suffering horrifically, but he's doing it for us. He's bearing our griefs, carrying our sorrows. Jesus suffered the effects of sin across this entire planet, including that man who broke his femur. That physical pain is part of the curse of sin that Jesus is bearing on the cross. Your emotional pain that you've gone through, okay? All of the, of the effects of the sinful world and what it's brought upon mankind, Jesus is bearing that on the cross. And he did it for you. You've seen the cross. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before it took place, from Satan's point of view, the serpent attacking the man and crushed in the process. We've seen it from God the Father's point of view, the horrific sorrow and suffering of God the Father sacrificing his son in our place. We've seen the cross from Jesus' point of view, as described in Psalm 22. And now we've seen the, the cross from our point of view, as Isaiah looks at it, and describes a scene of which he would say, I would love to just turn away from it. I don't even want to see it. Can I say to you that the scriptures are coming together to tell us that this was going to happen if we only had seen it, and, the, and that God the Son would lay down his life, and God the Father would, would sacrifice him for you? You say, well, I've sinned so greatly against God, God would never forgive me. Are you kidding me? With a love like God is showing, he would accept you. The only thing that keeps you from heaven, my friend, is your unwillingness to repent and turn to the Savior. I pray that on this Palm Sunday, you will turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, for he would save you. May God bless you. If you would like some extra spiritual help like counseling prayer or some help with questions from the Bible, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Everlasting life and light, he 